This morning we continue our Advent series, this series which we've called Within Our Reach. And we've been exploring, exploring the story of Christmas, paying attention to the various themes that seem to arise in correlation to the birth of Jesus. Within Our Reach has been our five-week series of rediscovering how Jesus brings hope, peace, joy, and love within our reach through the story of Christmas. It's also been this journey where we look to learn the implications of what that reality is for our lives. And so far throughout this series, we've looked at hope, we've looked at joy, we've looked at peace, and this morning we begin to talk about what it looks like when love comes within our reach. This morning, Christmas Eve, we look at how the story of Christmas is very much also a story that is surrounded by this sense of love, this sense of revolutionizing love that comes through the birth of Jesus. Earlier this week, I was beginning to think about love, and especially within regards to the story of Christmas, and I started to recall this holiday skit that we did in second grade. Now, in 1986, some of you may remember this song, but Christian singer Sandy Patty had released a song on mainstream radio that was called Love in Any Language. Does anyone remember that, right? I'm not going to sing it this morning, but I'm not sure that my second grade teacher was an individual of any faith, but for some reason she really fancied this song, and we began in class to practice this song, but we didn't sing it, luckily for my part, and we didn't have to sing it. We practiced it in sign language, and I probably could still remember all of the, you know, straight from my heart, love in any language, the, the sign that we did. We had rehearsed this song time and time again, and, and when we think about this song, those of you that know it, it's really this song that longs and desires this deeper than anything love that is deeper than anything that divides us. The lyrics read, love in any language, straight from the heart. It pulls us all together, never apart. And once we learn to speak it, all the world will hear love in any language fruently spoken here. Or maybe when we realize how much there is to share We'll find too much in common to pretend it isn't there. We all want this deeper sense of love. Love that brings us fullness. Love that brings us honor. Love that brings us respect. Love that brings us meaning. And love that brings us unity, even in the places we disagree. This week on Facebook, I asked, even though Christmas isn't about the presents, what is the one thing you're hoping for? As you can imagine, the answers were all over the place. Some wished for a puppy. Somebody wished for a ham. Somebody wished that the day would just travel slow. But one of my favorite answers was this. And one individual wrote, The only thing I want for Christmas is no discussions about politics. I'm sure quite few, many of us, would love that to be true of our Christmas gathering. Politics and theology, if your family is anything like the average family that attends church, politics and theology are two things that seem to always have the ability to interrupt family gatherings at Christmas. Really what this individual is hoping for when she said that she hopes for no discussions about politics is that she was hoping for a Christmas gathering that was defined by a love for each other that goes 
deeper and further than anything that can separate us. It's the same love that Sandy Patty was singing about from her hit album, The Morning Like This. Love in any language. We may call our desire to fix Uncle John's bad politics an act of love. We may try to say that arguing against Cousin Frank and his crooked theology at Christmas is also an act of love. However, truth be told, this is not love. It's not the same sort of love that you and I would want to be loved or met with. We want a love that revolutionizes our gatherings, our relationships, our situations. We want it to bring this fullness, this honor, this respect, this meaning, this unity. Truthfully, it's our human desire to love and to be loved. It's our desire. We want to love others, and we want others to love us. And we find ourselves talking a lot about love. Just think about this with me for a minute. The minute you tell a loved one, I love you, automatically we say or hear, I love you in return. Yes? It's been my intention to say this to my wife and daughters at least a half a dozen times a day. Because as a dad, as a husband, I want them to know that my love is not only demonstrated to them, it's not only embodied in my existence for them, but it's also announced to them. As you can imagine, as soon as I say I love you, Without even a breath in between, automatically I hear, I love you in return. I want them to know and to experience and to hear my love. And I hope it brings them fullness, honor, respect, meaning, and unity. It's important for us as humans to show love and to be loved. In addition to verbalizing our love for our family and our, those we're in relationship we actually begin to confess our love in the ending of our conversations. All right, love, you see you later, alligator. We sign it in the closing of our cards. Love, Jeff. Love, so-and-so. It's even the plot line of our favorite Lifetime Christmas movies. Somebody's always fallen in love in notes. We find something reassuring about being loved and having the ability to love others. In 1967, the Beatles tried to explain this, right? They wrote a hit song that became known as the Anthem of the Flower Power Movement. And as they began to kind of express their hope for a deeper love that would go beyond everything else, they sang, all you need is love, all you need is love, all you need is love, 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 love is all you need. Ironically, just three years after releasing this hit song, the Anthem of the Flower Power Movement, we find that the Beatles break up. In 1970, at odds and tension with each other. An odd intention that actually never was reconciled. Though we all desire to be loved, and we desire to love others, few of us ever experience an act of love that actually transforms us or revolutionizes us or our gatherings or our relationships or our situations. The reality is we seldom actually experience a deep sense of love that brings us perfect fullness. We hardly experience a love that brings us perfect fullness. We know it's all we need, but it doesn't stop us from breaking up with each other, those we love, with those that we are to be in community with. And so, because we know that love will never bring us perfect fullness, what we end up doing is settling for presence of love. We'll take a Christmas gathering without political discussion. 
that'll be just a great glimpse of love. Or we will settle for Cousin Jerry's socks that he gives us every year because deep down we know that is an act of care. I don't have an Uncle Jerry who gives us socks. This morning I want us to talk about the presence of love that comes within our reach through the presence of Jesus in the story of Christmas. The presence of love that comes within our reach through the presence of Jesus. Over the past few weeks, we've been looking at this passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 9, and we've been looking at how this prophet, uh, Isaiah, was, was known for his conversations with God, and he had both insight into the current era of what God's people were dealing with, but he was also gifted with foresight or foretelling of what was yet to come. Foretelling of what was yet to come. Isaiah's book of recorded prophecy and conversations with God gives us witness to God's desire to bring freedom for exile, from exile for God's people. The promise of God's presence in the form of Messiah, and it continually proclaims of God's love for his people despite their brokenness. Isaiah lived in a time of comfort, unlike the time of Jesus' birth that was full of tension, full of turmoil. It's from this time, all through the birth of Jesus, that people actually begin to look, as we've talked about in the past, for new direction in the sense of royal blood and royal births. Ironically, Isaiah writes in Isaiah 9, 6, hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, he writes about this act of love that will revolutionize God's people and the whole world. We have looked at this passage each week in our series within our reach, and this morning I invite you to look at it just with me one final time. Listen to what the Isaiah prophesizes to those who are willing to listen. Looking ahead to the future, Isaiah writes, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It was in our first series, Sunday of this series, that we looked at some of the imagery and meaning behind each one of those names. However, what I want to draw out here hundreds of years before the actual birth of Christ is that Isaiah is talking about this birth of a baby boy that will literally be an illustration and an act of God's love. It is in that understanding that Isaiah proclaims, who is God's son for? It is for God's gift to us is his son. Interestingly enough, this isn't the first time that Isaiah prophesied that God's love will come through the act in the presence of a baby. In just a chapter before, he says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. Now, we all know, or many of us will know, that Emmanuel translated either is God with us or with us is God gift that Isaiah said is coming, this act of God's love, is that God is with us, that with us will be God. This morning I want to look at the story of Christmas as Matthew tells it. And we are going to find that he makes some direct correlation to this prophecy from hundreds of years ago from Isaiah. All the Gospels tell a story, the story of Christmas, very differently. Luke, the one we've been looking at the past few weeks, the one that most of us will open up uh, tomorrow morning before we open presents with our kids and read. Luke, he tells the story with 
this overwhelming sense of history. He's an investigative doctor. He diagnoses it with detail, with political narrative. He knows that his Hellenistic Jewish audience needs to hear this comparison. It's in Luke that we learn the most of our details. John, the gospel of the story of Christmas is much different. And he trades in the nativity story for this uh, apologetic connection to Genesis. And he looks to kind of long to bring and connect the birth of Jesus to God's original intent for the cosmos. As well as show God's heart. And it's actually in John, in his gospel, that we learn the most of what drives God's heart. After all, he is the disciple in whom God loves. Mark is writing to an audience in Rome, a very political audience. Those who are living in the shadow of the empire. Those who are largely Gentile. And it's in Mark that we learn, if we look at the original text, and he uses stuff that is sometimes described as binding the strong man. It's in Mark that we learn to see how Jesus challenges the systems of the world. Matthew is one of my favorite books of the Bible. He writes much different. He's writing to a... Jewish audience. It's not usually one that we read on Sunday mornings. We like to go to the Luke narrative. Matthew, at first glance, when we look at his storytelling of Christmas, actually seems to spend very little time on it. First, he opens his book with a genealogy of Jesus, and if we'd study it, we'd see by all accounts it feels inaccurate. It adds people, it leaves out others. It purposely includes individuals others wouldn't. He specifically lists certain numbers of generations to make a point. And then Matthew goes into this short, brief overview of the Christmas story. And then he jumps right into the signs and the wonders of Jesus. So here's what he looks like growing up. It's bam, he's healing people. He's driving out demons. Matthew tells a different story because of what his background is. He's a storyteller. He's a midrash trained storyteller. And if you don't know what midrash storytelling is, listen to this. It was a popular way of telling stories in Jesus' day. It was a form of rabbionic storytelling that created creative commentary or interpretation of known biblical facts. They put their own spin on it. They did this for several reasons, but usually just to make a point, to make something relevant or to make a connection for the reader that they were afraid the reader wouldn't make. And that meant that sometimes they would allow themselves to embellish the text a little bit. These kind of people probably would be thrown out of the pulpit today, but it was very wide accepted at Jesus' time. They used parable and allegory. It's why Matthew offers his own genealogy and why we see his story of Christmas short, but making all of the important connections to Isaiah. Matthew only wants to show that Jesus has fulfilled what he saw God promising. He came with the authority of God, and he released his kingdom. He's writing to a mostly Jewish audience, in which would have either really connected with what Matthew was saying. Whoa, he's speaking our language. He put a spin on that we've never seen before. Or they would have been offended by his storytelling. I cannot believe that he would change things to make a point like that. Derek Morphew, a doctorate of New Testament studies, and whom I've had the chance to take a few classes under, and has published a book on Matthew, writes this. Each gospel writer elevates the person of Jesus Christ in a special way. 
each using their own particular language and their own way of storytelling. What is so special about the way Matthew portrays Jesus? What distinguishes Matthew from any of the other Gospels is his use of the title Son of David. You will notice, and as you would, if you would study time in the passages of Matthew, you would notice it, that this title is always associated with this idea of healing. It is because he is the son of David that the people expect healing or mercy of him. Think about the times that you hear Matthew use this. Son of David, have mercy on us, right? That's what they show the demonic crying out. Those familiar with Isaiah, one of Jesus' most quoted old-time prophets, and Matthew's most quoted prophet, will know that the Messiah of David's line will be anointed to set the captives free. For Matthew to be the son of David is to be the liberator of human oppression. Not in the narrow political expectations of Israel at the time, but in a comprehensive reversal of human oppression and suffering. Why? Because God loves his people. He keeps his promises to them. He wants, as Isaiah will tell you throughout his many messianic uh, prophecies, that he wants what's best for them. Let's listen in to Matthew. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph was her husband, was faithful to the law, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had a mind to divorce her quietly. Now, it's interesting. I want to point something out before we move on. It's something important that Matthew does with the narrative here. He talks about how Joseph was more ruled by the law than his love for Mary. Do you see it? He's more ruled by love. This is the only account in the Bible that we learn that Joseph actually might have considered divorcing Mary. Joseph was known for being faithful to God's law. And because of that, it was more important to him than his love for Mary. He needed to cut past with her. He could only assume that, you know, Mary was not as faithful to the law as him and that she did something scandalous. But out of his love for her, he didn't want to do it with a sense of public disgrace as popular at that time. He just wanted to kind of disgrace her quietly. And we begin to see this tension between love and law. Tension between love and law. But after he considered this, this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, there it is, right? Son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Because he will save people from their sins. Suddenly, A little experience with an angel and a vision or a dream becomes greater than his obedience to the law. Joseph sees this experience as greater than the law. It actually drives him to have a reliance on the Holy Spirit rather than his experience with theology. He takes spirit over law, love over law. He takes love over public opinion. In this, we see Matthew makes correlation to David, hinting that God's mercy and healing was now upon him. In fact, Joseph, according to Matthew, is to give Jesus the name Jesus. Jesus meant the name means to rescue, to deliver. It's Joseph, the father by adoption, who is also a son of David, who is to give Jesus his name, his anointing, and his calling. 
All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Here again we see Matthew's storytelling. Matthew offers commentary to say that all I've just told you about is actually to fulfill what the prophet said. Now there was no need for Matthew to clarify what prophet he was talking about. There was only one prophet that was referred to as the prophet that was seen with that much power and authority. And he was called Isaiah, the prince of prophets. Matthew then connects them to Isaiah's prophecies that we read earlier, and he actually quotes exactly from them. Then Matthew offers this commentary that Joseph didn't even have marital relations with Mary until Jesus was born. Matthew offers this commentary to show that Joseph wanted to show the power of the Spirit and leave no confusion to what happened in that story. In Matthew's commentary, we see Jesus, the expression of God's love, born to this family that valued both truth and spirit. Spirit and truth above all else. It is in Matthew's story of Christmas that we can see Matthew wants us to see that God's love has come and has fulfilled his promise. He's kept true to his word. And Matthew's story of Christmas and the rest of his gospel is full of what we might call fulfillment language. This is language that shows through points and commentary that this long-awaited day of the Lord or this heir of the Messiah has arrived. It is fulfilled in Jesus. He's kept all of his promises. This is the beginning of the end. And it's actually there where we get the word eschatology from, the beginning of the end. This, This idea that the end is already upon us. Matthew makes this point so evident as he explains that Jesus is named Emmanuel. As told by Isaiah, to declare that God is now with us. Derek Morphew says, in Jesus, God has visited his people. Now Matthew connects the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy to the story of Christmas. He shows what God's love looks like in action. Matthew wants you to know all the depth, the years, and the anointing that was wrapped up into the birth of the baby boy that now declared that God is with us. The Gospel of John doesn't tell us all of this. It doesn't tell us the story of Christmas and how it connects to prophecies or what God's love looks like in action. But it does echo Matthew in this way. It says that God has now moved into the plight of humanity, into the neighborhood. And John, the disciple we know as whom Jesus loved, certainly wanted us to know the heart of behind of what Jesus was doing. John records this story of Jesus where Jesus tells his own purpose behind the story of Christmas. It it appears in this conversation uh, Jesus is having with Nicodemus, but in doing so, he offers commentary on his own birth. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Isaiah prophesied that God's presence was coming. It gave people hope. Luke tells the history and the players. And Matthew tells the theology and the connections. And that the kingdom is now within their reach. John, he tells us the heart behind it. This great story, this great piece of history is because 
God loved the world. Now the, world, the word for world there means that inhabitants of the earth, men, the human family. And it's important to notice that later John's going to write to a church and he says, do not love the world. It's not the same idea that he's talking about here. Here what we see is God loves humanity. He loves people. He loves his creation. More importantly, he longs to be with those who are overlooked by everyone else. And with his authority, he wants to bring the kingdom to those who want to follow him on that path, that marginalized path. There's a few takeaways for us this morning. We all want to be loved. We all want to love. We all want to experience a love that fulfills, that honors, that respects, that unites, that gives us meaning. We all want a love that goes deeper than our differences. We want that for our church. We want that for our mission. We want that for our family reunions. We want that for our relationships. We look for love anywhere we can. Some of us are looking for it in the wrong place. Sometimes we look for it in each other. Sometimes we look for it in relationships. Sometimes we put that expectation on the church. We look for love sometimes to even come at the hands of political revolution or intervention. Just think a few years ago when Paul was running and he ran on the campaign revolution, but in that he highlighted the word love. We look at the 60s where people were looking at this time that has now been nicknamed as the love revolution for true love. The first takeaway is that true love is found only in Jesus. It looks like presence, not presence. To the Jewish believers, they knew what God would do for them when he came, but they truthfully wanted his presence, his gifts, more than they wanted his presence. They wanted his goodies. They wanted freedom. They wanted life, wealth, health, and more. To them, that is what fulfillment looked like. It looked like what they would get out of it. However, God's idea of fulfillment, God's idea of keeping his promise, was that he just wanted to be with them. When I tell my kids, I love you, I want to hear I love you in return. When I cut on the couch for a movie, I want my wife to cut on the couch with me, though I usually get the dog and the cat. When we love somebody, we want to be with them. We want them with us. We want to love them. We want to be loved by them, and we want them to be present with us. God is no different. After all, we are created in his image. Matthew tells us that God's love looked like Emmanuel. It looks like God with us. It looks like the literal presence of God. John's story tells us that God sent Jesus to be present with his people because God loves humanity. Christmas first reminds us what love looks like because of who is at the source. But the question is, when we encounter the story of Christmas... Are we still looking for the presence of Jesus or the presence? Are we looking for the gifts that he can give us? Or are we just longing for his presence? Secondly, the story of Christmas is about how God's love reached out to us. Matthew connects to the fulfillment of, of Isaiah's prophecies and the expectations of healing and God's love through the gift of his presence. It's a story of how God's love has reached out to mankind and broken in and invaded their reality. But it also shows, through Matthew, this future way of thinking. It dictates the future. It will continue to save people from their sin. God's love reaches out to them, and it continues to reach out to us, to you, to me, to our enemies, to our neighbors. Those of us with children know how quickly the life of a child transforms our habits, 
the way that we look at the world, and even our reality. It's only a few days after bringing them home from the hospital that we can realize that no longer can we live without them. They have revolutionized in love our reality. That same revolutionary love is around the birth of Jesus. If we respond to his love within our reach, we find it's God's love that is all we need. Truly encountering his love revolutionizes us to be driven by the Spirit's not the law. It moves us to have the mindset of, that Jesus later calls, you must love God and love your neighbor. The question is, are we responding to the reach of God's love, this love that will save us from our sins? Are we finding ourselves more transformed by love or law? Thirdly, the Christmas, through Christmas, the story of Christmas, the church should be reminded it is a place of God's love. Even in the story of the birth of Jesus. Jesus felt compassion for those that were hurting, the downtrodden, the lost. Jesus then grows up and becomes a humble servant to these people. He teaches his people, that his followers, his disciples, that it's important to love God, to love each other, and to love your neighbor. It's Christmas that's all about God's love coming within our reach. Through the presence of Jesus. It should remind the church, the God church, to embody love to each other, to demonstrate it to each other, and to remind each other of it by announcing it. When we look at the story of Christmas, do we see what's in it for us, eternal life? Or do we see it as this revolutionary reminder that, after all, it was God's love and desire to rescue and deliver the world through his love? If we believe Christmas is about God's love for the world, then let's be known by how that love has encountered us, how it's revolutionized us, how it's transformed us, how we live it out to each other, and how we remind each other of it. wonder how we can make that true of our church today. Lastly, the story of Christmas means we become ambassadors of God's love to the world. As Joseph encounters God's love, he responds to it. Matthew says, When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. Joseph was no longer concerned about what anyone had thought of him or what people might think. He was only concerned with love for God, love for God's plan, love for Mary, and love for this son, Jesus, who would grow up to be the Messiah. The Gospel of Luke tells us that when the shepherds encounter this act of God's love, they are revolutionized in this way. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told about them and this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds had seen. Like Joseph, the shepherds realized that the loving presence of God is within their reach, and these forgotten folk have now been revolutionized by it and become ambassadors of it. Christmas is the story of Jesus saying, I love you to mankind. He desires us to be revolutionized in his loving presence and to become ambassadors of his love to the whole world. How we respond to his loving presence and to his love for mankind is how we say, I love you in return to Jesus. Now think about your worldview. Think about how you view humanity. Think about how you view those crazy drivers on the road, your neighbors, those who you don't get along with. How you love them is how you say, I love you, back to Jesus. And the story of Christmas reminds us Jesus is saying, I love you. Now think about how you are saying, I love you, back to him. 
In closing, let me just say this. There's only one place that we can experience love that revolutionizes our lives, our relationships, our gatherings. It is in the person of Jesus. It is presented through the birth of Jesus. It is a story, as Sandy Patty said, that is a love in any language. The story of Christmas has transcended cultures, history, and countries. It plays witness to the act of God's love. It speaks of love in any language. It gives us purpose, respect, unity, and fulfillment. It revolutionizes our identity, our church, and our view of the world. What I fear this morning is some of us actually haven't experienced this love. We know law, but we don't know love. We give presents of love, but we don't know how to give our presents. We see the world as something to love, and I know that some of us are struggling to do that. And I know this morning some of us are actually in an oppressive place where we just need a fresh reminder and encounter with God's love. So as we stand for our closing song, I invite you to ask God to encounter you with his love for the first time or for a reminder. Christmas reminds us that God's love is within our reach, that it transforms us as we encounter it, And it makes us a community and ambassadors of love.